We are in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 14. This is Jesus speaking. He's at the Last Supper. He's just about to die. This is what he is saying to his disciples. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we, we want to be your friends. We, we want to, God, to live out our faith with integrity, with beauty, and with power. We don't want there to be a ceiling on our faith and on our destiny. And so, God, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear you, that you would hide me. We don't need to see me today. We need to see Jesus. We need to respond to Jesus. Um, For such a time as this, we are alive. And God, you are looking in this hour for friends. Your eyes are searching to and fro over the whole earth to show yourself strong to people and through people. And so God, for our good, for your glory, and for the good of this city, but also this nation, help us to respond to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. So we are in a series called Becoming a Friend of God. It is from the life of Abraham. Abraham is singled out in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the person that has this title, the friend of God. And we've been been looking at what that means. One thing that we have learned is God has many children and he has many servants and he has few friends. No doubt about this, Jesus is your best friend. Whether you even are saved today, whether you even believe in him, he is your best friend. He has already laid his life down for you. He has chosen you. He has gone to bat for you. He, he, is, he is the best friend you could ever have. But the question is, is will we be one of his friends? Proverbs 26, out of the New Living Translation, says this. Got some intercessory prayer going on over here. Um, Proverbs 26, New Living Translation. It says, many, many a man will proclaim their loyal friendship, but a faithful friend who can find Many, in their own opinion, are loyal and they're faithful, but the reality is, is what you say and what you actually live out are two very different things. And so there is an an invitation to all of us to go a little deeper than what we say or what we sing and ask ourselves, "Am am I really a friend of God? Today's message is is a very telling one because it's called laying down our lives. Point one, we are invited to lay our lives down for God. So here's Genesis 22, one and two. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering 
on a mountain I will show you. So it turns out that God tests those who want to be his friends. Those, those who are not content to just be a child of God or a servant of God, those who want to be his friends are going to face tests that others don't take. Lot never had any test like this. And this seems very serious. Would the very same voice that told Abraham to go out and I will bless you and I'll make you a blessing, that voice gets his attention. Abraham, and Abraham says, yes, Lord, here I am. And, and then that voice says something crazy. Take your son, your only son. He's already sent Ishmael alone. So Isaac is all he has left. Take your son and sacrifice him. Now, this is before the law was given. There was no law, don't kill. And so Abraham doesn't know what this is, except that God is telling him to do something. I think that we all need to realize that God's ways are not our ways. And what he will ask of us does not necessarily fit in the box of what we, 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 we think that's too much. One of my favorite passages is in the book of Job, it's really, it's God's explanation for the book of Job. Because <laughs> Job, this whole, the whole book of Job, Job is like saying that he's, it's unfair, that God would never treat anybody like this, that God shouldn't treat people like this, and that I'm righteous and, or, and God's punishing me, or I, and I don't know really what's going on, and how dare God treat me the way that he is treating me. And then God says this to him. He points out this animal named Leviathan that is clearly extinct now, but it was a massive animal, terrifying animal that had no natural enemies. And God said, can you tame Leviathan? Can you, can you put Le- Leviathan on a, on a leash and give him as, as a pet to your daughter? He said, then, then why are you trying to tame me? Why are you trying to put me on a leash? Why are you trying to tell me what I can do and what I can't do. No one has given first to me that they need to be repaid by me. It says in Psalm 115, three, that God is in his heavens and he does what he pleases. And God is wild. God will not, don't make a box around God or when you open that box, he will not be in it. He is, he is, he is good, he is, there's no darkness in him at all, but he is wild, he's a fierce lover, and sometimes he asks things of us that we think are too much, but God asks them because he loves us so much. And so I, I want us to get into this text a little more. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. The, the interesting thing about this passage is this is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. And it's not Abraham's love for God. It's his love for something that God has given. To fully understand what, why God is asking to give back the thing that, 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 that Abraham loves, uh, you, have to, you have to go back to Genesis 15. So here we go. One and two. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? 
So I appreciate the NIV staying with the Hebrew exactly how it is written, even though it doesn't make sense. Many of the other translations, like the ESV and the NASB, which is usually very accurate, they try to make it make sense for us. So God says, I am your exceedingly great reward. And then it's like Abraham doesn't even hear him. And he says, what are you going to do for me? I don't have a child and Eliezer is going to inherit my estate. So, so some of the other translations help him out to make, help the Bible out to make sense. So it says, they say it this way. God says, I am your shield and your reward will be very great. And so he's responding to the idea of a reward. But that's not what's going on here. God says, I am your reward. I am your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham is like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I want a reward down here. What, what, can you, what are you going to do for me? And, and I, I, want, I want to have a son. I want to have a legacy. I want to, I want to fulfill this. And, and so God goes with that. And God says, all right, all right, I'm going to give you a son, and, and, and look at the stars, and I'm going, to, I'm going to give you heirs. And so Abraham, and then of course Ishmael comes, and that wasn't God's plan, and, and then finally Isaac comes, and he's born of a miracle. Now Isaac is all grown up, and, and everything Abraham is, is Isaac. All the promises of God are in Isaac. All of his future, all of his dreams, everything is in Isaac. Isaac, and so God is calling for that thing that is the very closest to Abraham's heart. Why? Because God himself is the great reward, not something he's going to do for you, not a legacy that you're going to have. So God takes his scalpel and he tests his children. He says, I, I, I need to separate you from that which has become so precious and valuable to you. God expects that he will be more important, more valuable to you, even though he's invisible, than everything you can see and everyone you can see. This is a requirement to be a friend of God. Look, look for a moment at Matthew 10, verse 37. So this is the words of Jesus. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son, their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, this is how it works. You're going to have to love me, the unseen God, more than you love the people that you can see. Even those that are closest, even those that are most precious, even those that you honor the most, your life, your destiny will never come to pass unless I am the supreme value in your life and my opinion makes every other opinion inconsequential. Once you know what I want you to do, that needs to be what you do, regardless of what mom thinks, dad thinks, son thinks, how it's going to affect relationships. I need to be above. I need to cut out the fear of man, all secondary loves that are competing loves. I need to cut them out or it's not going to work for you. This is actually my love for you. I'm cutting this out. I will ask you to give back that which is most precious. But it's not just people. It's also our dreams. Look at, look at the next verses. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life 
For my sake will find it. So God has put inside of us dreams and desires and, 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 and a destiny. And, uh, and it was all being fulfilled in Isaac and God asked for it back. Every single one of us need to recognize that our dreams and our destiny can become more important to us than God. God can actually become a means. Oh yeah, I need God because I've got a destiny. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do all these great things. And so I need God's help. So God, I need you. But it's all about me. It's all about my ministry and what I'm going to do. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. You, You need to embrace the cross. You actually need to lose your life and let me refine your dreams. Let me refine your destiny and then you, you, will, you will find your life without your dream destroying you because it's more important to you and I become a means to your end. So here is what happened to me in, in 2008. It's, it's December of 2008. We're actually on vacation somewhere and I have a, a dream, powerful, powerful dream. And in this dream, I'm in this public venue and, and while I'm there, I feel like God speaks to me to do something that's going to be very embarrassing to do in front of all of these people because we're not in church, we're in a restaurant and it would be inappropriate. And, but I love God so much and I know he, he thinks that I, that, he, that, that I think he's speaking to me. And so if I'm going to obey, I'm going to look really stupid, but I don't want to displease him. I'm so in love with him that I don't want to displease him. So I stand up and I do the thing God's telling me to do and, and I try to just get it over with really quickly and the anointing of God comes and God heals all these people that were broken and it's just an amazing dream and, and I wake up from this dream and the presence of God is still resting on me and I'm like, wow, that was great. That was a cool dream. I, I don't really know the significance of it, but cool dream. So then I go out and I get my coffee and I get my one-year Bible and I get my little light on and I'm all set, I pull my blanket up and I'm all set to, to have my, and a, and a question comes to my mind, just as clear as can be. And here's the question, what do you want? What do you want? And immediately I know the two options. <laughs> we had come to Madison because of prophetic words, they started in 2005 about City Church, that God was going to take Lake City Church and Mad City Church and put them together and make City Church, and I was going to be the pastor, and, and we had believed these words and prayed into these words, and, and so we had come to just Mad City in 2007, but we're still believing for City Church and this, this dream, and, and I, knew ex- I knew exactly what God was saying. Here, here's what, here, here was, what do you want? Here was my two options. Do you want to have a successful ministry that has a lot of influence? Do you want to be an important person? Or do you want to have an intimacy with me where you would do crazy stuff even in a public setting just because you love me so much and you don't care what you look like because I'm just everything to you? Which do you want? And I'm like, oh, my, is this what all of this has been about? Is that the whole thing with City Church? Has this whole thing been a, a test as to what's in my heart? And I'm like, I'll tell you right now, God, I choose you. I choose intimacy. I do not need City Church. I don't need to be important. I don't need to be influential. I don't need to be any of that. Uh, I am 
absolutely convinced that God gave me a choice and I get to choose, I choose intimacy with God. And, and literally, the next day, I called two of the friends that I had that were praying about City Church and praying, believing this. And, and I'm like, guys, uh, I love you and I thank you for your zeal. City Church is not gonna happen. God gave me a choice. I chose not. I chose intimacy with him. What's that got to do with you? I believe right now, God is saying this to City Church, but also to the American church. What do you want? Now, this is really hard for us as human beings, especially in the church, because we assume that we want the right thing because we say we, say we want the right thing. And we sing, my, my, the songs we sing, if we were half what our songs say. <laughs> but, but the problem is God doesn't look at what you're saying or what you're singing. He looks, he looks through us to our, what we actually want. And we need, you need to be very careful about what you actually want. Because there's this guy in the Bible named Elisha. And let me just, before we get into Elisha and Gehazi, let me just say this. At the beginning of the series, here's one of the things that I said. To become a child of God, you have to choose heaven over hell. Hell is real. Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. He came down from heaven, died on a cross to give you and I the gift of eternal life. So to, to get saved, to become a child of God, you choose, literally choose heaven over hell. I do not want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And I accept the gift that you paid for on the cross. Thank you, God. But to become a friend of God, you have to choose heaven over earth. You have to choose what heaven is offering over all of the things that earth offers. That's, that's what it will be to become a friend of God. And so here's, here's what happened with Elisha. Elisha wants heaven, heaven's destiny for his life. He wants all that heaven has. He's been following Elijah around for these years, and he's seen the intimacy of this relationship. Elijah has a prophecy. It comes true. Wherever Elijah goes, the presence of God goes, and Elisha's just hanging out with him, and, and, and God reveals to him, this, Elisha's gonna, or Elijah's going to leave you really, really soon, and so he will not leave Elijah alone. And so Elijah comes to Jericho and, and he says to Elisha, hey, buddy, stay here. I'm gonna be going on. It, it, don't wear yourself out. Don't tire yourself out. It would be inconvenient for you to come with me. You just stay here, relax. I'm going on to Jericho. Elisha said, not doing it. Not doing it. I'm not leaving your side. And so they get to Jericho and he's like, listen, seriously, Elisha, I'm, I'm, uh, we're exhausted, but I'm going to go on to Bethel and I don't think you should come. I think you should stay here. I think you should take it easy and be comfortable and let's get you a nice hotel. Let's get you a five-star with a hot tub. You just stay here. And Elisha's like, I know exactly what you're doing. Not doing it. I'm not leaving your side. I don't care what it costs me. And it happens a third time. And then finally, Elijah turns to him and says, all right, what do you want? What do you want? And here's what he says. This is the passion of his heart. I want double of what you have in God. I want a double portion of your relationship with God. I want more intimacy, more prophetic, more power. I want everything you have double. And Elijah's like, wow. If you see me when I leave, you're going to get that. Just because you asked, just because you wanted it, 
So when he goes, the mantle falls, and Elisha has this incredible ministry where he has double the miracles that Elijah had. It's just, it's just heaven comes to earth. So then Elisha gets a servant, and his name is Gehazi. And, and, and it's the same thing. Gehazi is following him around. Elisha, he's seeing all of the miracles. He's experiencing all of the miracles. And, uh, and he's in line to be the next prophet, that the anointing could be doubled again. But this Syrian general named Naaman comes. This is all in 2 Kings chapter 5. And he's got leprosy. And he comes to Israel because the servant girl in his house says, why, do, why, doesn't, why doesn't my master go to Israel and be healed? There's a prophet in the land. Why doesn't he go to be healed? And so, so he goes to Israel and they send him to Elisha and, and Elisha tells him how to be healed. And he goes and Naaman gets amazingly healed and Naaman has loaded his donkeys and camels with silver and, and clothing because he wants to pay for the miracle. If I'm going to get a miracle, I'm going to pay for it. And so he tries to pay Elisha and Elisha's like, nope, can't take anything for that. That's not, that's not, how, that's not how the grace of God works. This is all for free. You cannot pay for what heaven gifts. And so he goes away healed, but hadn't given anything. Well, Gehazi's like, what a wasted opportunity. It's not like we were begging him for money. He wanted to give us money, and we let him go with nothing. And so he goes after Naaman, and he says, he says, listen, some people came right after you left, and we actually will take some of, some of that compensation. And so he, he suggests an amount, and here's what Naaman says. I'm going to give you double. I'm going to give you double of what you wanted. He gets back to the house, and Elisha says, Gehazi, I saw everything that happened. And the amazing thing is, guys, he doesn't have to give any of the money back. He gets to keep all of that money he got. But he becomes a leper, and therefore he can't be with Elisha anymore. He has to be separated. Elisha actually has to get a new servant, and he loses his destiny in God. Tragic. And that tragedy can easily be repeated in our lives. God, there's an invitation on the table. What do you want? Do you want to be God's friend? Do you want more of heaven? Do you want double of whatever heaven has given in the past? Do you want to be so filled with the Spirit, so filled with his eyes, so filled with that identity that, that has garments of white, so filled with, with that fire that it refines you and, and all of your works are gold and are all going to be there for a reward? Or do you just want enough heaven to get saved and try to get as much of earth as you can get. Here's my warning. Watch out. You might get exactly what you want and get spiritual leprosy where you're never, ever able to fulfill the destiny God had for you. Guys, this is a very special time in history. For such a time as this, you are on the earth. For such a time as this, he's asking you individually, but us as a church, what do you really want. I don't know. How do you feel about this? I want to choose right. I, I want to choose heaven. I want to see what God might do through people just like us. 
We're going to move on to point two. And I'm glad that nobody clapped because in the first, in the first service, it was awkward. One, one person said amen. And then, like, and then I said only one. And then two more people started. It was just awkward. So let's just, let's, we're going to move on to point two. We're not even going to, we're not even going to go in there. Here's point two. So point one, we're invited to lay our lives down for God. And here's number two. We're invited to lay our lives down for one another. So this is, this is Jesus at the Last Supper. And he says, here is my command to you, to love one another. And then he says what love looks like, that no greater love than, does anyone have than this, that he would lay his life down for his friends. I'm asking you to love each other the way that I have loved you. And of course, he laid his life down for us. And now he's asking for that response. It's one thing to lay your life down for a perfect God. It is another thing to lay your life down for people like us. And Jesus is like, I'm asking you to love me so much that you are willing to lay your life down for each other, for imperfect, sinful human beings. So here we are. Genesis chapter 13, 5 through 17. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. And the land could not support both of them while living together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are relatives. Is the entire land not before you? Please separate from me. If you choose the left, I will go to the right. Or if you choose the right, I will go to the left. Lot raised his eyes and saw the vicinity of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt going towards Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the vicinity of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. So they separated from each other. Abraham, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the vicinity of the Jordan and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now raise your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as plentiful as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be counted. Arise, walk about in the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So the flocks and herds get too big. The herdsmen start fighting for each other. Abraham's very cognizant. That he is sent from God. He is representing God. And here we've got these Canaanites all over the place that were living right in front of them. And he says to Lot, let's not fight. There's something more important about than which piece of property I get. And that is the name and the honor of God. Let's not fight in front of the world. You choose. You, you go ahead and choose. I'll take whatever is left over This is Abraham laying his life down, choosing 
relationship. We're not going to have a fight and, and that whoever gets this property because we fought so much about the property and we both wanted the same property that now we don't have a relationship anymore. No, Lot, you're more important than which land we get. Let's preserve the relationship and you just take whatever you want to. I'll take what's left. So Abraham chooses relationship and the Bible says that Lot chose for himself. This, this is really... Part of Abraham's test is how he treats Lot. His name hasn't changed yet. It's still Abram. His name eventually is going to be changed to father. But right now, it's just Abram. And God, it's it's like God is using Lot as a test for Abram. Lot's dad died in Ur. His, his, His dad's name was Haran. He died. And so... Abram kind of adopted him as his own. And so when he went, Lot went along with him. And and here we see that he chooses Lot and that relationship over himself, getting what he might have wanted. And in the next chapter, we see as soon as Lot gets to Sodom, war comes against Sodom and all of Sodom is taken into captivity, Lot along with him, and Abram fights for him. He puts his life at risk takes all the men in his house and they go and they get back Lot and get back off Sodom. We'll talk a little about that next week. And then in chapter 19, Sodom is going to be destroyed and Abraham prays for Lot. And Lot saves, or God saves Lot and his family because of Abraham's prayer. It says it in Genesis 19 that, that, when, that when God delivered Lot out of Sodom, it was because he remembered Abraham. <laughs> This is what a father does. A father is willing to take responsibility for somebody else and to say, your welfare is more important than mine. Your destiny is more, I am willing to sacrifice my stuff so that you can go higher. I want to put you on my shoulders. I am willing to be responsible for you and for your success. This is what fathers do. You know what's happening in our society today? Nobody wants to take any responsibility for anyone else. Everybody's running as far away from responsibility as they can. And in in this hour, God is asking people to shine brighter than ever. I'm asking you to be fathers and mothers. I'm asking you to sacrifice for the next generation. I'm asking you to take people in that aren't even your kids, that aren't your flesh and blood, people that I'm going to lead to you, and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting you to father them. I'm wanting you to mother them. I'm wanting you to take responsibility for them, and the big promises to Abram come after, and, it's, and it, isn't it interesting? Lot really doesn't even turn out that good. It's like Abram did all this stuff for him. Certainly there should be a guarantee that Lot's going to turn. We know he made it to heaven. 2 Peter 2, 7 says he's in heaven. But he really never went that far. But God's not asking us to make people work out good. You you can't make anybody work out good. Has anyone learned that? (laughs) People kind of, it's like they have their own will or something. I'm not sure what it is. But but you you don't have to make anybody work out good. You just need to love them. And you, you, you need to be willing to step up and say, I will, I will take responsibility for you. So this passage is very near and dear to my heart. Here's what happened in 2008. We came to Madison in August of 2007 
to pastor Mad City Church. And we got there and it became very evident that there were, there were two, there was a, it was a large staff, there were two pastors on the staff that didn't want me to be their pastor. I don't know why they didn't speak sooner or louder or whatever, but I got there and they, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't wanna be in my church. They didn't wanna be part of my church. And so they started doing things and saying things. And finally, at the beginning of 2008, they informed me that they were starting a new church. And it was gonna look different than our church. And the main difference is I wasn't gonna be there. They were gonna be in charge of it and they were gonna do it. And, uh, and so I am deeply, deeply troubled by this. And I'm just there. People don't really even know me. And so they're gonna start a new thing. And, and so I'm praying and I ask God, God, what do, you, what do you want me to do? And the Lord uses this scripture. And he couldn't have been clear. I want you to let them choose whoever wants to go with them, they can go with them. I want you to let them to, to present what they're gonna do, where they're gonna do it, how they're gonna do it, and I want you to let them do it publicly, and they can take whoever they want you to do it, and I want you to continue to pay their salaries. Come again? So that, so that, so that, but it couldn't have been clear. And so the new church started in, in April of 2008, and we paid their salaries through the end of, of that year. And, uh, and, but God gave a promise. And here's the promise. After they leave and after they take everybody they want to take with them, look around at everything that's left. I'm going to bless everything that's, that's left. And this is point three. Faith will be blessed with whatever it's left with. Laying our lives down. Really hard in America. It's very hard in America because we've got two messages at the same time in America, don't we? One is um, people have fought wars so that we would have rights and we have an obligation to all those who have died to stand up for our rights in America, don't we? We can't just let our rights be trampled or their sacrifice was in vain. But in the kingdom, as Christians, we are called, because he died for us, to lay down our rights and to not insist on being treated a certain way and, and that we have to be okay. And so, God, how do we do this? And, and that's a whole nother sermon for another day and both are important. And uh, the short answer is you lay down your rights personally and you stand for people's rights that aren't you. And anyway... Um, Another message, another message for another day. Faith will be blessed with whatever it's left with. So that was the promise. I believed it. I will never forget the service where they presented. They had recruited worship people, some of the best worship people, the best speakers for the new church. And I remember the Sunday that they presented the new church. So here's what we did. And the power of the word God gave me was this. We're not gonna have a church split. Church splits bring out the worst 
of what's happened in private and it makes it very public and the whole world looks at the church and says, look, church is filled with pride, church is filled with politics, church is filled with selfishness and this is one more evidence. Look at the church split and everybody's suspicious of everybody and accusing everybody and their sides and it's just like, it's just like our government. Um, it's, it's just ugly and if it's government, people are like, well, that's government but when it's in the church, it's just, it's just, it takes God's name and it runs it through the mud. And so I, I was not going to allow a church split. But a church plant is when you intentionally, as church leadership, choose to plant a church somewhere. And it was, certainly wasn't that. So here's what we called it. A church start. It's not church split. And it's certainly not a church plant but it's a church start. There's another church starting. And I will never forget, it was, it was March of 2008 that they presented what the new church was gonna be, the name and the video of it and the speaker. And, uh, and Christina, my daughter, is standing next to me or sitting next to me during the message and she leans over to me and she's like, Dad, who is gonna be left at this church? And I'm like, I have no idea, honey. I kind of want to go to the new church. <laughs> and so we had two years, really, with this, with nothing but God's promise that everything will be blessed of suffering. It got worse. It got small. Our church got smaller. Theirs got bigger. Everything looked like it was going the wrong way. And, and then in the fall of 2009, Brian White, a, a prophetic man, he'll be here. He'll be here speaking in a few weeks came with the word about City Church. And, and of course, 2010, City Church was made. And honestly, what I thought was God's blessing, this has gone above and beyond anything I could have imagined for God, God blessing, God blessing this work. So I want to tell you another story. I got permission from this friend of mine this week. He said, absolutely tell the story. And so... He owns his own business, and I just happened to call him one day, and I said, how are you doing? He said, not good. I said, what's up? He said, I, I'm not sleeping. I said, well, why not? And he explained. He said, uh, I'm so deeply troubled. I've got an employee that wants to sue me over a misunderstanding of his contract, and, and it's, it's, it's ripping me apart. I led this young man to the Lord. I gave him this job as an opportunity him, and now he wants to file this lawsuit against me, and I, I, I know I would win the lawsuit if I went to it, but it would be everywhere, it would be out there, it would be, it just would be bad for the kingdom. And he said, but he's also offered arbitration, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I owe that to him. And I said, bro, I said, let me tell you a story. And I, and I, I talked to him about Genesis 13. And I said, choose the relationship over the money. Go to arbitration, and God's promise to you is whatever you're left with will have his blessing on it. Let him take whatever he wants, whatever the arbitrator decides on, and just happily write the check to whatever that is, and, and watch and see what God does with what's left. And so he started sleeping at night and decided that's what I'm going to do. I'll go to arbitration. So he goes to arbitration 
when everything has both sides have shared and how the contract read and what he thought the contract, here's how, and these numbers are very large, so don't be shocked by them. The arbitrator, the arbitrator decides that my friend can settle this by writing him a check for $400,000. So he gets out his checkbook and writes a check for $400,000, hands it to him. Two weeks later, he has this stock come into his mind. He cannot let go of it. And he just feels like maybe God's telling him, I'm supposed to buy this stock. And so he buys 10,000 shares of this stock. In two weeks' time, the stock doubles. And and a a certain day, the Holy Spirit says, sell. Now, here's the interesting thing about the day he sold. It's the only day that the stock was that high. It went back down to about half. So he sells on the day that it's at its highest amount. And his profit from the sale was $1 million. When you do what's right, even though it's hard, when you do what God is telling you to do, even though it's not what you want to do or what other people are telling you to do, God watches the sacrifice you make and everything else is going to have his blessing. So I, I was in the midst of preparing this message. I get a, a magazine called The Voice of Martyrs and it was on Pakistani Christians and and. I read it from cover to cover, and it was all about how horrible the lives are of Pakistani Christians when they become Christian, that they lose their jobs, they can only have the worst jobs, they, 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 they struggle in their life, their witness, they're, they're always at risk in their, because of the, the government and the persecution, and I, so I'm on my prayer walk, and I'm, I'm like, God, how can I tell this story and give this truth that you're going to bless everything that's left when that's not always the case. Sometimes people are suffering for you and, and they die and they, they pay the ultimate sacrifice and, and immediately this is the verse that came to me. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And here was the truth. When somebody's life is worse because they came to Christ, worse only on this life, Jesus says, I am going to multiply the reward in heaven. In fact, If you had all of the facts laid before you, you would actually choose for more reward in heaven and less on earth. (laughs) Because guys, this life at the very most lasts 100 years. Do you know what 100 years is compared to eternity? It's like one grain of sand. Eternity is a long time. And those rewards in heaven, they never go away. They're indestructible. And so God says, don't worry about those who seem to have sacrificed, to seem to have outgiven me on this earth. They will be blessed beyond all measure for all of eternity, and every eye 
will see that.